Thanks, Gary, for leading us as we pour out our hearts before the Lord this morning, as we pray before the Lord. What a joy just to hear about the good things that the Lord is doing through our missions teams. Such a joy, such an encouragement. I look forward to hearing the Ireland team in the second hour. I look forward to hearing the Czech team the coming week. And I'm thankful for the chance we have now just to be able to open up God's Word together. For some of you, this will be part two. For a few of you, this will be uh, part one, which will be okay because I promise I'll give you a little bit of review. A couple weeks ago, we opened up the book of Revelation to a passage that's very near and dear to me. And you might wonder, even before we begin, why we'd open up this book, the book of Revelation. It's definitely the most difficult book in the New Testament to begin to preach or to exposit. And what we said was that so many of us, we get stuck on the details, we get stuck on the prophetic aspects of the book, and we lose the big picture of the theme of Revelation and its grand subject. And that grand subject is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now many of us, we think that the book of Revelation is about prophecy, it's about the second coming of Christ and the details around those events. And in fact, there are more details around the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation. But in fact, about 280 of the 400 or so verses of the book of Revelation are actually direct references to the Old Testament. In fact, much of the framework for what we know about the end times, what we call eschatology, is actually derived largely from the books of the Old Testament. The book of Revelation draws from Daniel, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from the Psalms, and from other books of the Old Testament. It gives us more detail around Christ's second coming, but still the great theme of this book, of the Revelation, in the Greek, the Apocalypse, literally the unveiling of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the great theme of this book, is unveiling the glory of Christ. We find Christ unveiled. We see Him in the fullness of His divine exaltation. In chapter 1, verses 7 through 20, we see Him in His blazing glory. In chapters 2 and 3, we see Christ as Lord over His church. In chapters 4 through 20, we see Him in the glory of His second coming as He executes judgment on the world. And in chapters 21 through 22, we see Jesus enlightening the eternal state. In the Gospels, we find the humble Jesus, but in Revelation, we find Jesus highly exalted. We find Jesus the victorious, the conquering King, awesome in His deity. In the Revelation, we find the resurrected, the eternal, the glorified, the awesome Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is sovereign over every circumstance of human history, from the creation of the world to its uncreation at at His second coming. And so the book of Revelation is supremely about Jesus Christ. It is the revelation which God the Father gave to God the Son about the future glory of the Son. He is no longer presented simply as the meek and lowly Savior. He is the King of kings, the all-knowing Lord of lords, whose eyes are like a flame of fire with piercing, penetrating vision into the hearts of men and into the church. And so, the book of Revelation is a gift. It is a gift from God the Father to the Son. It is a gift to us. It is a revelation of Christ and His glory where we see Christ as the avenger of the martyred saints, the judge of the world at His second coming. He is the object of eternal worship, eternal praise. The author of the book of Revelation, the aged Apostle John, this is the Apostle whom Jesus loved. 
He never identified himself in his own gospel. He just says that he is the one whom Jesus loved. If he was renowned for one thing, it was for his love. He was beloved by Jesus. And the Apostle John poured out the love which Jesus poured out upon him, upon others. His epistles are overflowing with love, with care, with concern for the churches. It's a constant theme in his writings. 1 John 3, 1, he says, "What Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so he frequently refers to believers as his beloved, as his children in the faith. And so John, the last living apostle, the one who had reclined on the breast of Jesus, the one who had had such a personal, intimate communion with Christ, his constant concern was for his children, his constant concern was for the church, and he loved them. He wanted nothing else but to see them prospering. He wanted nothing else but to see them growing in Christ and growing in love with him. The apostle John had been there in the earthly ministry of Jesus. He had been there in the early days of the church. We read about in Acts chapter 2 how the they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. He had been there in those wonderful days in the founding of the church, when the church was strong and the gospel was being propelled to the ends of the earth. He had been there when the gospel had come to Europe, to Asia Minor in particular. And many churches had been planted in this region, which we know today is Asia Minor or Turkey. There had been churches in Ephesus and Colossae and other cities. And not only so, there were not only one Apostle Paul who had spent his ministry efforts, every ministry or every journey, missionary journey he had taken, had taken him through Asia Minor. Not only that, the Apostle Paul, but also the Apostle John had personally ministered in this region. And so the churches of Asia Minor were blessed by not just one, but two apostles who had ministered there. And here the Apostle John is in his 80s. He's an old man. He's giving his last years of his life and ministry to this region. And we see, we see that the Apostle John, his heart was just to see them grow. His heart was just to see the churches prosper, but he could not rest because something was beginning to happen in the churches. Something dreadful. The church which had been so strong, which had been so vigorous in the early days of the Apostles' ministry was now beginning to become corrupt. They were living hedonistically. They were tolerant of false doctrine and moral living. They were lukewarm in their profession. They lacked passion for Christ and for His cause. There are seven churches which are addressed in the book of Revelation personally by Christ. Of those seven churches, five of them are severely reprimanded by Christ. One of the churches, Ephesus in particular, had been commended 30 years earlier by the Apostle Paul specifically for the love which that church had had. But now, as Christ writes to this church, as Christ gives his message to the church, they are rebuked for their lack of love, for having lost their first love, that brilliant zeal of love for Christ and for people. The other church's Pergamos is compromising. Thyatira, corrupt, tolerant of false teaching. Sardis is a dead church. Laodicea, lukewarm in their profession. Many in the church had fallen away. They were no longer holding to sound doctrine. And so the Apostle John, his, he had no greater joy, as he writes in his epistles, no greater joy than to see his children walking in the truth. And yet there's carmality, compromise, it must have plagued the soul of this dear saint. On top of this, there was 
a persecution which was beginning to become widespread throughout the entire empire. It started back in the 60s under a Roman emperor named Nero. And now, at the close of the century, the emperor Domitian is making persecution of the Christians systematic, widespread. In fact, one of the pastors of one of these early churches by the name of Antipas had already been martyred. And John himself was banished to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And this is where he is as he's writing to the churches. The apostle who had loved Jesus, who is beloved by him, whose greatest joy was just to see his children walking in the faith, had to watch as the churches were beginning this decline spiritually. And not only so, but John himself finds himself isolated, finds himself exiled by himself on the island of Patmos, not even able to minister to the churches which he loves so dearly. But we have in Revelation a great encouragement from the Apostle John. We have in the book of Revelation not simply just moralizing precepts, but the Apostle John encourages the church by opening up to us this grand panorama of the glory of Christ. His answer, the answer of Christ, is to peer into the Scriptures and to see Jesus Christ in His glory, to see Him in the fullness of His exaltation, in His coming as He executes judgment on the world, as He moves through the churches, exercising chastening authority, as He ushers in the eternal state, and Jesus will be the Lamb of God upon the throne who will give light until all His saints forever and ever. This is the answer of Christ to the compromising church to unfold the vision of His glory. And it is John who experiences this vision. He's in a translate state on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week on Sunday as we come to Revelation chapter 1. As we read about the vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, the Apostle John, he often uses words such as like or as, figures to try and explain this exalted vision of Christ which he has because it's impossible to try and capture in words exactly what the glory of the Lord is. This isn't uncommon for revelation in Scripture. Ezekiel and his encounter with the, the living Lord in Ezekiel one twenty eight, he says this, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so even though we have really just, as it were, almost a shadow of this glory, yet it's so overpowering and there's such a great message for us. But hear the description of Jesus now in His glory. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Let me just read verse 12. He says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And this is how the, the revelation about Christ begins. Is John is transported into this trance-like state where he receives a revelation about Christ and His glory. And what we find in the following verses is an awesome contrast between Christ in His sovereign power and yet in His intimate and tender communion with His church. Jesus is the sovereign judge of mankind, but He's also the intimate shepherd of His church which is wayward, His church which is falling away. And so trace with me as we go through these verses what should be our response 
to the picture of the living Christ as John unfolds it in verses 12 through 17. We're going to take these verses a little bit out of order, and I think you'll see why in the end. So let's start with verse 13. In verse 13, we read, In the midst of the seven golden lampstands, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. We'll stop there. And this word, one like a Son of Man, this is a favorite title for the Messiah. Jesus has applied this title to himself over 80 times in the Gospels. It drives from Daniel 7, verse 13, a vision of Daniel, of the second coming of Christ, of the eternal reign of Christ. I was watching in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so we see Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven. This is imagery which is repeated here in the opening verses of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even though he pierced him. Now many in the history of Christendom have, not, have mocked at this notion of Christ coming in the clouds as though we were to look up in the sky and if it looks like it's going to rain one day then it's a, a signal that Jesus is coming. But instead, this is a figure for Christ in His glory. This idea of Christ in the clouds, it's a reference to the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. This is the glory of God that filled the temple of the Old Testament that indicated the presence of God with His people. And Christ is going to come as the Son of Man with great glory to unfold before the nations of the world. The Ancient of Days is also the the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the pre-existing one, the one who is sovereign over time and history. But why this title, the Son of Man? Why is it used so frequently by Christ in the Gospels? And why is it used here by the Apostle John? It is because it expressly emphasizes the Lordship of Christ. John chapter 5, verses 22. Christ says, He has given him, the Son of Man, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Acts 17, 31. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so this title, the Son of Man, speaks to his sovereign reign over peoples and nations, over time and eternity. And even though Christ came in the form of a man, Daniel tells us that this man will one day be ruler, this man will one day be Lord over heaven and over earth. And further we read that Jesus is clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. Well, what is this garment down to the feet? Well, the word for garment that's used here, It's oftentimes used in the Old Testament to speak of the vesture or the clothing of the high priest. Exodus 25, Exodus 28, speak of the breastplate, the ephod, which is just part of the the clothing of the Old Testament high priest, the robe of the ephod. Also we find that the high priest was girded or strapped around the chest. That means instead of a belt, there would be this band around his chest that would allow the garment to flow freely from the chest down. And so, many, because of this, see a picture of Jesus Christ in His priestly authority here. They see a picture of Jesus in His priestly function. There's more justification for this, perhaps, in the book of Revelation. 
In chapter 1, verse 5, we read that Jesus is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And so, Jesus is pictured as the one who covers us and atones for us. And not only so, it was interesting as I was studying this week, I counted over 30 times where the book of Revelation pictures Jesus with one specific title, the most frequent title for Jesus in the book of Revelation, and that is Lamb, the Lamb of God. Revelation 5.6, just as one of a couple examples, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. And Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And so this picture of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb, the one who offered himself as a sacrifice, we see Jesus pictured here as a high priest. And yet so many times in the Old Testament as well, not only was Jesus pictured, not only was the high, test, was the high priest pictured as the one who would wear this garment down the, to the feet, but also many times in the Old Testament we find depictions of someone who is in a place of power and authority who would wear this garment down to the feet. In fact, where the two words in the original come together here for a garment down to the feet in Ezekiel 9.2 the reverence is one to someone who has power and authority to do God's will, not necessarily to the high priest. So what does this imagery represent? Is it the priestly function of Christ? Is it his dignity? Is it his authority? I think Revelation 6.16 gives us a clue. We read about those who are suffering under the wrath of the Lamb before his second coming. And he says, They called to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And what an interesting phrase, what a pregnant phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. Think about that, wrath of the Lamb. I don't think it's one that we would often think about in the same breath. It's, it's really almost an oxymoron. And yet there's a great and deliberate irony here. For it is the Lamb who submitted himself to death once and for all to save his elect, who is now also the judge of the living and the dead. And when the nations are suffering under the judgment of Christ before the second coming, in this period which we know is the great tribulation, they will recognize that it is the Lamb whom they crucified and killed, who looked as if he had been slain, who is coming with power and with authority to render eternal judgment on their souls. And yes, it is the same one who made atonement for their sin, who is now the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And so this figure of Jesus, that the Son of Man with his garment down to the feet pictures Jesus and his completed priestly work as he stands ready to execute fierce judgment on the hypocritical church and on the world. We read also that this Son of Man, his, his head, even his hairs, were white like wool, like white wool as snow. And there's a pattern of Re- in Revelation here from moving from the general to the specific that might help you as you have a chance yourselves to read through this book. And so he speaks first, of really, first about his, the head of the Son of Man and then specifically about his hairs. His hairs are white, white like white wool. Some have suggested that this white represents perhaps the purity of Christ and his sinlessness, his suffering. But the language here is very clearly reminiscent of Daniel 7.9. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The head and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Daniel 7 is a vision of the Ancient of Days, a vision of the future judgment of Yahweh, Jehovah, the God, judging the entire earth. And here the Holy Spirit takes this imagery, which, is a, which in Daniel is applied to God the Father. And here the Holy Spirit applies it to God the Son, as is a pattern in, not only here, but in the rest of this book in the New Testament. In fact, in Revelation 1, chapters, chapter 1, verses 11 and 17, chapter 22, verse 13, we read this, I am the first and the last. And this is strictly a quotation from Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. And so the title, this title of being the first and the last, which was in the Old Testament reserved exclusively for God the Father, here is applied equally to God the Son in His equal divinity, His equal deity with God the Father. What is true of the divine nature of God in the Old Testament is equally true about His Son. And the picture of the Ancient of Days, His head and His hairs are white like wool. It's a picture of the timelessness of God, His eternal existence, and therefore, His sovereign power to wield authority over mankind, to judge mankind. And so the Apostle John gives us this picture of Christ and His glory with authority to wield over the church, His compromising church, with authority to wield over the world which rebels against Him. Moving on, His eyes are like a flame of fire. This is another reference to Daniel chapter 10. Verses 4 through 6, where Daniel speaks about a vision of the pre incarnate Christ. Read, listen with me as I read from the book of Daniel about this vision. Starting with verse 6 His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, in the Daniel passage, Standing behind Christ is an angel who's portrayed as fighting against the world powers of Persia and Greece. He's a fierce angel with power to do spiritual battle. And in fact, in classical writers too, this idea of eyes of a flame of fire portrays this idea of a fierceness, of a strength, of a power to be able to combat adversaries. And not only so here in the Revelation... The Apostle John also takes this image and he applies it to Christ as having a penetrating vision into his church, discerning the true nature of the hearts of men. John writes in Revelation three eighteen and 19, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And for your works, the last are more than the first. And so the Son of God here is seen pictured moving through the church with this penetrating, knowing judgment, chastening the church. And so his eyes are a flame of fire, looking deep into the hearts of men and into his church. His feet are like gleaming bronze as a glow in a furnace. I'll adjust our translation, tweak it just a little here. The original is difficult, but this word which... In most translations, it's translated as, brass, or as bronze or brass. It is an alloy. It's a mixture of metals. It's not really known to us today exactly what this mixture is, but 
in the ancient literature, we have pictures of it as being a mixed metal of great brilliance. It probably included gold or silver. And what we, do, what we know about it for sure is that there was a great splendor. It was a greatly brilliant metal. And so, in some translations, we'll find it depicted as brass or bronze, but what we know for sure is that it was this metal of great splendor, great brilliance. And not only so, it was... His feet are shown as being refined, as some translations say. This probably doesn't go far enough to, to really explain the root of this word, which really is the word for fire. And so the picture is of gleaming bronze, as though it were in a glow and a furnace. And we have a picture of Christ in his power, Christ of power, a picture of Christ in his majesty. Also Exodus 38 verses 1 through 7 talks about the altar of the burnt offering. It's covered with brass. This is a place of burning. It pictures the destructive force with which Christ will vanquish his enemies. There's similar imagery for this also in other places in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 1. It pictures the living creatures around the throne of God. They're said to be glowing, said to be gleaming, like as though they were in a furnace. Ezekiel 1.27, Daniel 10.6. His arms and his feet were polished, burnished, like bronze in color. And so... This idea is of refinement and purity, but also of the white-hot judgment that Christ executes on the apostate church. The judgment which Christ executes on the world. His voice is like the sound of many waters. Now before, in verse 10, when Christ first speaks to the Apostle John, his voice is said to be like the sound of a trumpet announcing this vision to John, but now it's this awesome, overwhelming sound, the sound like a violent storm, like the sea crashing up on the rocks. This would have been familiar to the Apostle John as he's exiled on Patmos. The sound of the waves crashing on the rocks on the seashore of the island of Patmos, the pounding waves of the sea. This image again suggested by Daniel 10.6 where we read, the sound of his voice is like the sound of a multitude. And so it's a picture of the thunderous judgment, the authoritative power of his words. Jesus speaks with divine authority for his judgment over the churches in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The word here for sword is, is one of a special type. This word is found only a couple times in the New Testament. But the short Roman sword, although that's a different word, may have compelled this imagery and in fact it's shaped something like a tongue and so because of that we have this imagery of a tongue protruding out of the mouth of Christ there's biblical basis for this imagery as well Isaiah 11:4 speaks poetically about the judgment of God we read he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and so we have this enduring imagery of Christ's power of judgment we find it again in Revelation 2, 12, 2, 16, 19, 15. It is a picture of the judicial authority of Christ. It's as though Christ is a warrior who's conquered his enemies and now is pronouncing a sentence of judgment upon them. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The word for countenance or face here can also be translated appearance, but 
Here this word probably does mean face. The other aspects of this vision of Christ refer to specific elements of, of Christ's, Christ's body. His feet, his eyes, and so now probably speaking about his face. The Old Testament basis for this is Judges 5.31, a portion of the song of Barak and Deborah. And there it refers to those who love the Lord. In Matthew 13.43, the faces of the righteous are said to shine like the sun. Revelation 10.1, the angels as well are said to shine like the sun. And this, this image must have had profound significance for the Apostle John as well. Because over 60 years previously... On the Mount of Transfiguration, as we read in Matthew 17, the face of Jesus was said to shine like the sun. And so 60 years after this original transfiguration, where Christ revealed His glory to the disciples, where Christ revealed His glory to a select few of the apostles, here is this capstone image to describe the overwhelming glory of the revelation of the ascended Christ. And so throughout, Christ is depicted as judge, as sovereign, sovereign over the church, penetrating with vision into the church, with authority to judge the world, with authority to exercise chastening judgment on His church which He redeemed with His own blood. And so we find the majesty of Christ depicted in these verses. I want to look... I want you to look with me as well about one aspect of this revelation that might be surprising to some of us. Because we find in these verses as well a picture of the intimacy of Christ. You see, despite His holy, awesome nature, despite Christ's holy hatred for sin, despite His intolerance for iniquity, despite His surpassing righteousness, the incredible truth that we find in this passage is that the risen Christ dwells intimately with the church whom he has redeemed. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, one like the Son of Man. Now this is mysterious imagery, and perhaps it would remain so. What are these lampstands to which the Apostle John is referring here? And it probably would remain so if it weren't for verse 20 where it's explained. Verse 20 we read that the seven golden lampstands which John saw are the seven churches And so I suppose the lesson for us as we're reading through Revelation is if you only get through 12 verses and you stop and confuse, you're confused, then keep reading. If you read through verse 20, then you'll at least get a clue about what it is. And it is true that as we read through the book of Revelation that although there are things which are confusing, there are images which are complex and so foreign to us that they are unfolded as we keep an open heart and an open mind to what the Spirit is revealing. And so here these seven lampstands are the seven churches And again, these seven churches are representative of churches, not only in that age, but representative of all types of churches in all ages. And so Christ stands in the midst not only of those seven churches, Christ stands in the midst of His church universal. And notice where Christ stands in relation to them. Verse 12, it's Christ who stands in the midst of those seven golden lampstands. You see, it is the Christ who is clothed to the feet with a garment, who is girded about the chest with a golden band. It is the glorious Christ whose head and hair are white like wool and His timeless eternity, 
whose eyes are like a flame of fire with penetrating vision into the hearts of men. It is the Christ whose voice is like the sound of many waters and His authority and His power. It is this same Christ who stands in intimate communion with the church which He has purchased, which He has redeemed. In many times, in many places, that church has not been the glorious bride which she was intended to be, a beautiful bride arrayed in costly apparel, pure, chaste, pleasing to Him. And yet Jesus said while He was on the earth, I will build my church. And so the Christ of glory is still merciful to bear with the weakness, with the failings, with the shameful things of the church. It is the special joy of Christ to lift the church out of her disgusting compromise, out of her indifference, and to cleanse her, to strip her of her filthy rags, to, to clothe her with robes of righteousness. You see, no matter how grieved the Lord is over sin, yet He never forsakes His elect. He was with them. He bore with the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness. His Shekinah glory was with them in the tabernacle while they committed immorality, while they were rebellious, while they committed idolatry. His spirit was grieved by their sin, but yet His presence never departed from them. Oh, the loving kindness of the Lord to deal with His people, to to strive with them. Isaiah 5.25 Therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them in anger and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were like refuse in the midst of the street. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is still stretched out. You see, the hand of the mercy of the Father, the hand of the mercy of the Son, is never exhausted. The divine help, the divine hand of protection of Christ over His church is always extended to His wayward children and all their affliction and all the things in which they suffer even for their own sin. Isaiah 63.9 In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. I believe that's a picture of Christ in His pre-incarnate stance, His pre-incarnate state, the angel of His presence. In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. And He bore them and carried them all the days of old. It is Christ who protects His church. It is Christ who is also gracious in His sovereign protection of the leaders of the church as well. Many of us, we wonder, we fear about submitting to, to a human authority. Isn't it natural? You wonder about submitting to the leaders of the church, submitting to elders. Well, beloved, know that the elders of the church rest in the tender care of Christ. Verse 16, we read this. He has in his right hand seven stars. The seven stars, we find out from verse 20, are angels or messengers of the seven churches. These are, as they were, lead elders or pastors who represent each of the churches. Throughout the book of Revelation, this word angelos can also refer to angelic beings, but here... It must refer to human beings because angels are never leaders of the church. And so in the right hand of the Son of Man, in the right hand of Christ, 
In this place of safekeeping, Christ has the leaders of his church. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. It is a place of safekeeping. And the right hand speaks of a place of favor and protection. Psalm 110.1, Hebrews 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, speak about the Christ as He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And so therefore we see a picture of Christ, this, this picture of, of Christ as it were. If you could only imagine a, a Caesar, and one greater than a Caesar, and yet here He is almost as it were wallowing in the mire, in the mud, in the midst of His church, a, a corrupt church and a church which is tolerating sin. A church which is not the beautiful bride which she should be and yet Christ is in the midst. The exalted Lord in the midst of His church. It's almost as a giant stooping down to pick up as it were these leaders of the church and providing for them His sovereign control, His sovereign direction for the leaders of the church and for the church. And so we see not only the majesty of Christ in this revelation, but we see His intimacy, His intimacy with the church and even with the compromised church. Finally, I would like you to see with me from this passage the humility which Christ inspires. Notice the reaction of the Apostle John in verse 17 to this vision. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John fell at the feet of Christ like a dead man. So overpowering, overwhelming was the sense of awe, his sense of utter unworthiness that it completely overtook him. And this is always the response of the prophets when they are confronted with the vision of deity. Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel's vision of the Lord, we read, And from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. The prophet prostrates himself in worship at the sight of the living God, the revelation of Him. Judges 13, Manoah, the father of Samson, likewise, when he's confronted with the pre-incarnate Christ, and it's revealed to him that it is actually the Lord, Yahweh, he similarly falls on his face. Daniel in his vision, chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, after this vision, this glorious vision of the Son of Man, Daniel is similarly prostrated. He's bowed down. And beloved, when we also confront the ascended Christ of Scripture, we ought to have a sense of holy awe, a sense even of terror. Though we be so sure of our salvation in Christ, yet there is a sense of utter mortality in the face of the Divine One, in the face of our awesome Creator. And if you've been listening up until this point and wondering, what is the point? What is there to take away from this? 
Well, now you can tune in because the point is that in the heart of the redeemed, there ought to be just such a sense of tremendous humility that should stem from the encounter of the living Christ of Scripture. This is the answer for the compromising church. This is the answer for the Christian who is tempted to compromise. It is a clearer vision, a more exalted conception of the risen Savior. I submit to you, if you have not walked away from the Christ of Scripture, having been changed, then your eyes have not seen Him at all. The church today, our church, desperately needs to recapture this vision of the resurrected, of the glorified Christ. And may God help us. Some years ago, as I was speaking of the glory of Christ to a group of short-term missionaries for a few minutes instead of the better part of an hour, but I scanned the audience speaking about the glory of Christ in missions and I was looking over the audience and I saw everyone staring back at me. I'm not sure if they were in rapt attention or just in a catatonic state, but they were all looking straight at me except for two people. This couple is now a missionary couple serving the Lord in Africa. And as I was speaking about the glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, I looked out and I saw two heads that were bowed down. You see, when they were confronted with the glorious Christ of Scripture, they were cut to the heart. They saw their own unworthiness. And they came away with a sense of awe and majesty before Christ. Beloved, maybe you've thought, maybe in your heart, we all have this sense that maybe one day we'll end up like these corrupt, tolerant churches of Revelation a dead church, a lukewarm church, a sinful church. I think that is a holy fear, almost a holy dread, which sometimes we ought to experience. It's a healthy process. So, beloved, how are we to assure our hearts before God? The answer is that we must bow, we must prostrate our hearts before the living, the resurrected, the ascended Christ. We must stand in awe of His glory. Marvel at His tender mercies as He stands in the midst of our church, directing us, patient with us, waiting for us to repent. Patient. Always let yours be a quick, a wholehearted repentance. Remember that it is Jesus who says, once and again in the Revelation, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. And there ought to be an urgency in our hearts as we think that the Lord Jesus Christ is soon to be revealed in glory to His church. The day comes quickly. Heavenly Father, oh, what an awesome Christ, clothed down to the feet, girded with the chest, around the chest with the golden band, Awesome, majestic, priestly, kingly, with power, with authority to execute judgment, to chasten first His church. And then we know that one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Oh Father, I pray that, our, that You would work revival in our hearts 
Father, grant us repentance that we might be able to see clearly this vision of Christ as He's lifted up in His glory. That we might, like the prophets, prostrate, bow our hearts and our heads before You. Grant us mercy, grant us grace this day. We come before You as a sinful church, as a loveless church. We become before You like the Ephesian church, as a church which can do all the right things and say all the right things and yet in our hearts so many of us have gone cold. We've gone cold in our affection for Christ and our affections for people. Grant us repentance. We come humbly before You, Father. May Your Spirit bear with us. Open up to our eyes a wonderful vista of Christ that we might see Him, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of Him, that we might treasure Christ that we might be passionate in our proclamation of Him to ourselves, to our brethren, and to the unbelieving world. Be merciful to us this day, O God, we pray. Bear with us yet. And for all these things, yet we thank You because we know that You who began this good work, You who began this great work of salvation in us, You are faithful and just to bring it to completion. And so for that, we grant you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.